Hey guys, thanks for tuning in to this episode of the Let's Talk Tenkara podcast. I'm joined today by Jonathan Antunes out of Colorado. Jonathan, thanks for joining us. Thank you for having me. Absolutely. We look forward to uh, getting some information from you hopefully today and learning a little bit more about yourself and fishing in Colorado. Sure. Um, but let's get let's get started with some of the basic information here. And how did you get started in Tenkara? Uh, I got started with Tenkara pretty much by accident. I was looking at magazines. Um, I think it was 2000. It's like the winter of 2011. Okay. And. I started to like, and I saw this guy, you know, casting this rod and it was a, it's a wide shot. So you could see all the line up in the air and just, you know, it looked really nice. The, the rod looked very supple. And I was like, that's kind of cool. And it's like, you know, Japanese form of fly fishing. I'm like, oh, he said the secret word, Japanese. So I'm like, I gotta, I gotta get into this. Like, I don't even know what this is, but I gotta try it. And uh, yeah, I got, my first rod in july and i took it up to the blue ridge mountains because at the time i was living in florida okay. so a trout fishing trip for me was eight hours and you know at least eight hours for me to get up there and then you know spend a weekend or you know plan a whole week of uh, fishing in the blue ridge mountains so yeah that was uh july of 2011 that i started Perfect. Um, you mentioned uh, fishing in Florida, and I, I mean, fishing, as most people know in Florida, trout, like you said, it's not the biggest option down there. So did you mainly target trout with Tenkara, or did you branch out into other species as well? Um, I branched out into other species, but uh, it really wasn't my preferred choice. Like, okay. I, I got into trout fishing in 2005. And I had been doing the Western style uh, for quite a while. And that all started with a trip to Wyoming. And then when I got back, I was like, you know, I'd always, I'd always been a bass fisherman. You know, I'd done a lot of bass fishing in Florida and, you know, it was great. But as soon as I got a taste of mountain streams and like, you know, trout and, you know, how cool it was to like tie flies, I was like, oh man, I'm, I'm done for. And when I got back, I was like, uh, yeah, I, I my my interest in bass faded very quickly. I definitely understand that. I mean, I grew up trout fishing and have tried to branch out into bass and some other species, and I keep getting sucked back over to trout every time I try to branch out. Um, I do fish for other species, but trout trout owns my soul. <laughs> yeah, yeah, right, yeah. So it caught me late. It caught me late, but but it did get me. Yeah. Yeah. And there's no turning back once it does. Nope. I mean, I guess if you move back to Florida, then you might branch back out into other things. But I probably still find myself planning trips to get up to the mountains, you know? Yeah. No, I don't blame you there. And especially when you look at, so there's just something about getting out into the mountains and fishing mm -hmm. those small streams, like bass fishing, uh, other type of fishing, crappie, bluegill, whatever it be. It's fun, but there's just something about getting out onto those little remote streams where there's nothing but trout and getting away from everything. Yeah, absolutely. 
it's everything about it, like the smell of the river and, you know, just the, the, the way that it looks. It, there's, there's something very elegant about that, the sport, you know? Absolutely. So started Tenkara fishing in 2011, July. Mm-hmm. Um, how long into uh, your Tenkara journey did you feel like you were starting to finally figure it out? <laughs> it took a while, dude. Like I, I meandered for a long time because there wasn't really a lot of information out there. Um, and at the time I didn't really, I didn't really get connected to like Facebook, Facebook groups about it. So, and also, I mean, coupled with the fact that I don't really, I didn't really get out to trout fish very often. So, you know, the Tinkara rods would come out, you know, during my trips up there and then they would go away, you know, and I, I would never do anything else with them for, you know, the rest of the time. So I kind of like, I was somewhat committed, like I really enjoyed it, but at the same time, like I didn't have like the venues, you know? Yeah. Um, so it just kind of like, you know, it waned a little bit. Um, it took me forever. Uh, I finally moved to Denver, Colorado in 2016 i want to say yeah 2016 july of 2016 and that's when that's when things started to really pick up um started doing the western thing you know of course and then uh there was a uh summit in estes park back when tinkara usa was still doing their summits okay yeah and and that that summit in particular was the big aha moment you know because these people were talking about like you know these techniques and you know these different ways of catching fish and i was really intrigued by the whole thing i was like oh man i think i'm i think i'm doing things wrong you know for the longest time i'd just been fishing with you know western flies and whatever i had a sakasa <laughs> let's just let me just give you the the story uh this sakasa uh i had tied it back like when i first started to learn about the car i never fished the thing i just didn't even bother to fish it it wasn't until after the summit that i was like you know what i'm gonna try this fly you know and i'm gonna see what what's up and i'll never forget uh i was on bear creek uh which is a tiny little tiny little creek uh that uh flows into uh, one of the tributaries for the South Platte. So it's right out here, right outside of Denver. <clears throat> and I was fishing there with this little Sakasa, and I had a great time. Like I was catching fish. I was starting to unlearn a lot of the dead drift type things. Um, and just adding a lot of, you know, motion to my flies and man, it worked really well. Like I was like, Oh man, this is it. Like, this is, I got it. You know, but, you know, obviously you think you've, you know, you, the curve, right? You know, you think you've, oh man, I figured it out, you know, but then it's like, oh, geez, there's a lot more to this, you know? So you start, you know, wade into the water and all of a sudden it starts getting, you know, chest deep. So, yeah, so, yeah then I just sold all my Western rods. Like after that, I just didn't even want to do it anymore. I was like, okay, I'm going to commit myself to fishing this way all the time. So anytime I go, this is the way I'm going to fish or I don't fish at all. Love to hear it. I mean, 
I haven't quite made that commitment. I've still got a couple Western rods that, I mean, they're collecting dust in the closet. They haven't been used in for, well, I take that back. I counted yesterday and I've used my Western rod, one of them, twice in the past three years. And it's yeah. just been for, like, I'm going to a big reservoir targeting tiger muskie. Yeah, and that would be the only reason that I would get one, uh, is to maybe fish some of these alpine lakes a little bit differently. Mm-hmm. Um, because, yeah, it's nice when they're cruising the shoreline, right? But sometimes they're not. So Absolutely. I mean, I we talked about the alpine lakes there, and I, I don't even take them when I do that kind of stuff. I've got three weights and five weights and an eight weight and the eight weight's the only one that gets any use because like I said, I'll use it every now and then if I'm going to the reservoir targeting tiger muskie and other than that, it sure. sits in the closet. Right. My wife actually a few weeks ago was like, if you have these, why do why don't you use them or why don't you sell them? And I'm like, well, no, <laughs> just in case. <laughs> but, you know, yeah. what it is. All right. Well, um, in your experience, what are three things that you wish you had learned earlier or that you wish you knew that when you started? I mean, you mentioned your Sakasa Kabari and going more simplistic uh, yeah. later, but what are some things that you wished you had started with? Uh, level line for sure. 100%. I, um, I am not a fan of furled line. Um, it's heavy. It doesn't help with your presentation at all. The only time I would ever use a furled line is if it were very like, and I have some that are clear, like clear, clear furled line from Japan. And I'll use that for, you know, windy days when I'm just, you know, maybe a streamer or something like that, you know, downstream presentations with like really big flies that I probably shouldn't be casting with Inkra. And then, um, what's that? I said, what? That never happens. <laughs> Every once in a while. You know, it, it's funny because, um, so I've gotten into the whole, like, like classic streamers. And the classic streamers come in two two flavors, right? You have the, you have the hair wing and you have the feather wing. The feather wing casts, like, absolute junk. Um, I can't, I can't cast that stuff. I can't cast it with a level line. The only thing I can cast it with is a furled line um, because it just catches too much wind. Now, the hair wings, you can cast very well because um, it's not as much resistance. It's not like, you know, like casting a paddle out in the middle of, you know. Yeah. So, yeah, the, the hair wings work better, in my opinion. Oh, but, I yeah, know. no, I, uh, level line would be one for so, sure. Um, the second part was just, like, be, get, you know, get started. Like get started, like, like, just unlearn. Start unlearning, you know, like all the stuff that you had learned before. Um, the thing was that I didn't see anything wrong with what I'd learned before, and the truth is, there is nothing wrong. Um, it's just a different, this is a different mentality. It's a different style, um, and I think, I think even like, tr- uh, traditionally, if you look back, like to you know. Um, early uh, fly fishing here in the United States, you see a lot of wet flies, you know, open any book by, um, by Mary Orvis Marbury. You're going to see they're all wet flies. Oh, they all have wings. They all have, you know, they're all meant to be swung. Like 
sometimes you would wax the wings and you know make them float for a little bit you know but they were they were wet flies and we have really moved away from it um so much so that rarely anybody ever talks about it you know um so yeah getting back getting back to more like you know kind of kind of learning learning how to move the fly you know learning how to get get these fish to react to what you're doing um like diving into the technique you know that i, I wish i would have learned that sooner um but then again you know the the place wasn't the place wasn't great like you know i was i was in florida didn't really have much opportunity to do that with trout and tinkara is really really great for trout you know that's that's where it shines absolutely so that's that's two what would be the third one um oh jdm japanese manufacturing get into those japanese rods uh you know the the the, the chinese have this expression that says it must taste bitter before sweet and i think that that was probably the case for me like i fished with chinese american rods for like seven years and then my first uh japanese uh rod was the karasu uh 360. okay and i was like oh my gosh what is what have i been doing like what have i been doing this cast so great i yeah i wish i, I wish i would have gotten into it a little sooner Oh, fair. I mean, for me, I, I fish American rods. I do have a Japanese rod, actually. I have I just one Japanese rod right now. I was looking at one the other day, and I didn't pull the trigger on it. My wife would have shot me. But, um, <laughs> you know, I love my Japanese rod. I, I love my American rods. It, it has a different flavor for sure, a different feel for sure. Like you yeah. said, you're going to notice with that Japanese rod, they're a very finesse rod. They're, they're yeah. going to be a lot more smooth with the flow and everything's going to feel really good. And some of the American rods are going to feel a little bit more clunky, uh, some a lot more than others, obviously. But um, it's interesting to see the difference between rods. And I set a goal for myself to fish as many rods as possible this year that are rods that I don't own. So right. we'll see how that goes. I just I want to know like what other rods are about. So yeah, and you know, keep in mind that the Japanese are the ones that developed the sport. They're developing rods that are made, especially especially like um, especially like Oni. You know, um, he's making rods that are that do everything that he does well. So all the manipulation techniques that he does, everything that he does on the water, um, the rod has to perform all of those things very well. Um, so they're they're designed with those with those requirements in mind, and that's why when you when you get one of these in your hands, you're like, oh, this is so much easier. Like everything that I was trying to do and kind of sort of doing, now I can really do this. Like now this, I mean this rod is so responsive like you know like there's there's times when my favorite technique is tap tap and 
<laughs> it just it gets it gets strikes. It gets strikes. I, there's no there's no doubt about it that that vibration is doing something um, to call up fish. And just that that tapping, you know, if you have a rod that doesn't respond very well on the tip, it will dampen what you're doing instead of quickly correcting itself. You talk about tip rotation and, you know, all that stuff. Um, a rod that is manufactured correctly, that's made for this, you know, these specific techniques, uh, is going to have a very fast reaction, you know. And every time you tap, that tap is going to be translated to the fly. Um, it's not going to be dampened at all. So that's just, you know, one thing to consider and one thing that I've noticed. Yeah, absolutely. And like you said, it is, I find it's important to make sure you have that flexible tip. Like you said, uh, I fished cheap rods that definitely don't have that. And you definitely feel a difference. You're going to miss yeah. strikes. You're not transitioning. Like you said, if you're doing tap tapper, some of these other techniques, you're not going to get that transitioned into the fly as well. So that's definitely something that I've seen as well. So here's, here's the thing. Uh, the American rods, they serve a purpose. Okay. Um, you're going to be able to uh, be forgiven a little bit um, for beating up that rod because when you when you start when you start when you first get into it, you're going to break something because those those tips are so thin and you don't really know how to you know how to how to work this thing. And I've seen so many. I've I've done it myself where you just break a tip. You know, it's like you know I hardly I hardly did anything. You know. Or it just flies out and it breaks, you know. And it happens. So I think the I think the American market, uh, it has a purpose. And the purpose is that it's it's getting us into the sport, you know. Um and it's it's more than enough for, for anybody, right? Um if you're looking for mastery of the sport, you're gonna have to go to the Japanese. But if you're just interested in catching fish and you're having fun and you don't really want to put up with, you know, having, you know, to pay fifty dollars for a for a, a tip, you know, or fifty dollars for a section, uh, which you probably will end up paying, you know, with all the shipping and everything. Yeah. Um, then you know it's it's worth it to buy an American rod. And they, they do have their place. Um I I carry two rods with me. My uh, Oni Honryu 395. Uh, a rod so nice, I bought it twice. I have two of them. One, one is a backup. Um, and the other rod that I fish is the uh, Hellbender by Dragon Tail. Why those two rods? Um, the Dragon Tail I can use for nymphing. Uh, I can use with bead heads. And if I break a section, no big deal. I go and get it fixed. You know, bead heads any kind of smack on the blank and you're asking for trouble you know and i just don't like to do that with my japanese rods my japanese rods are 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 specifically reserved for um flies that don't have weight and they're you know just regular traditional traditional kibari or like north country spiders or wet flies or you know etc cetera, etc cetera. um so more traditional techniques Nymphing techniques, uh, like urine nymphing or you know, whatever you want, tactical nymphing, if you want to call it that. That's that's my hellbender territory. 
And I can, I can count on that rod because it's, it's made for big fish, you know, and I've never encountered a fish that I yet that I haven't been able to catch with my hellbender. Um, now that I said that, it's probably, <laughs> I don't mind. Uh, but like I said, it's forgiving. Cause you know, if you do something, if you accidentally, you know, break it, you can, you can get it fixed. And so that's why I carry both American and Japanese. Yeah, I carry two rods with me. They're generally both uh, American rods, unless I'm on. I've got a few streams that I only fish my Nissan rod on because I'm not worried about overpowering that rod on those streams. Yep. Versus a lot of other water I fish, I am worried about overpowering that rod. Yep. Um, but the other reason that I personally do American rods is when I'm out guiding uh, mm -hmm. the company that I use is wasatch tenkara and their yep. warranty is just too good for as a guide i can't pass that up yeah no it's 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 probably one of the better warranties in the business um Absolutely. I, I haven't seen anybody anybody put up like that that's yeah. i mean that's a real I've, deal i've heard of multiple people well actually like multiple people being two people have broke rods on a fish mm -hmm. and they replaced the section no questions asked and to me, that's phenomenal. Uh, for a guide, they give me a little bit extra insurance where if my client breaks my rod bashing it on a tree, they'll hook me up as well. But yeah, so yeah, that makes a lot of sense to me. Yeah, exactly. And then, like I said, I do have my Nissan rod. I fish it on my smaller streams that are made or that rod is made for, and mm -hmm. I love it. But then I've got that, those other situations where the, the big rods are just the option. Right. But, I, so I definitely understand having two rods. I mean, you always want to have backup if nothing else, right? Oh yeah, and I, I, I have a lot of I have a lot of smaller stream rods. Um, you know, most of them are JDM, but um, it's just you know uh, preference. Yeah. Uh, you know, fishing you know the the headwaters with you know with Japanese equipment. You know? Absolutely, no, and that makes a lot of sense. Um, let's get into flies a little bit more. We talked about uh, some different streamers. Uh, you mentioned bead heads and the Sakasa. Yep. What is your go-to fly? <laughs> uh, an old fly from the 1800s called the Cutcliffe. Okay. It is. Uh, and people give me that look whenever I tell them, uh, especially when I'm catching fish at, at the South Platte, because that's not what they expected to hear. Yeah. I don't think anybody would expect to hear that one. Um, it's one of those. It's one of those flies that you can do a lot with. Um, it's a uh, it's a stiff hackled fly. You can tie it. You tie it mostly with rooster. And uh, I like to use either Gallo de Leon uh, or India uh, India uh, rooster uh, neck. Okay. And those those particular flies, uh, they look very bushy. One here, very bushy looking. And all it is really, it's, it looks like a caddis. Um, it has no tail, and nearly all of them have absolutely no tail at all. Uh, but they're very bushy, and they're tied. They're tied by folding the hackle, and you fold it backwards. So that hackle is kind of like facing in the the revert in the you know the like a wet fly 
Mm-hmm. And really what these are, these are stiff haggled weds. And what I'm doing with this is I'm fishing them right along the top, sometimes, sometimes in the surface, and just giving them motion, you know. Uh, sometimes, sometimes upstream, but mostly downstream. Um, it's 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 a lot like an older style of fly fishing uh, that they call uh, dibbling, which is uh, you're basically using a long rod, and you're you're using that that length to and a light line to be able to keep that fly on the surface, and <clears throat> There's uh, a very similar technique that involves wind, um, where you're dapping the fly, you know, and it's very, very uh, common to see that, like on locks, uh, in uh, in the you know the British Isles, you get a lot of you know wind on those locks, and that that light line is made of floss, and what happens is that 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 fly is just kind of you know bouncing in and out of the surface, you know. And that kind of activity is just irresistible to fish. Um, and that's that's basically what I'm doing here. I mean, not not necessarily the wind part, although that does happen. Where it gets so windy, like you can't really do anything except for that. Yeah. Uh, but man, it works. Um, you know, as soon as that fly just dips right back down in the water, man, they're on. So, um, so what I what I'll do with that fly is the fly is really not. It's, it's very easy to tie. It's very simple. Um, but what I'm doing with the fly is the real, the real, like rubber meets the road type thing. Uh, I tie all my flies with action in mind or with a purpose in mind. Um, what do I want to do with this fly? Like, how do I want it to move? How do I want it to look? Um, and I'll go through that process and these particular flies, you know, I didn't invent them, but I have done things with them to make them more interesting. Um, personally to me, like just adding new materials and materials that weren't really around when Cutcliffe was alive, you know, in the mid 1800s. Um, and that's, that's kind of, you know, it's given me a little bit of room to play with. Um, but it's, it's an amazing technique. I'm basically casting across, uh, like down and across sometimes at a, you know, I vary my angles because the, the 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 wider the angle, the faster that fly is going to move, right? The the shallower the angle, then that fly just kind of stays in place, and then you can kind of work it in the current up and down. It, you can either bounce it, or you can just kind of drag and tap. And that drag and tap is probably where I catch most of my fish. And okay. seeing this fish like reach the water. You know, to come out and grab the fly is, and it's exciting. Uh, it's really exciting. That's just that's just a straight line. The other way that I fish this fly is with a dropper. So I'll have maybe about a foot of line down to my tag, my um, my point fly. A point fly can be any kind of wet fly, whatever you want. You know, it could even be a smaller cut cliff. Um, and then off of a dropper, about six about six inches off of the main line is going to be another one. And that other one is bushier. Um, it's definitely definitely made to be just kind of like dipping in the water, right? And I don't know if you've ever seen like yellow sallies when they try to hatch or, you know, even 
even like caddis that are just kind of you know trying to lay their eggs uh it's pretty erratic and it, they sometimes they'll get stuck in the film and they just kind of like sit there and try to break out of it yeah and that that is that's absolutely the trigger you know that vibration um because your fly your point fly is holding the tension out here you know and then you've got that one dangling down and it's just kind of dipping its butt you know into the water and it's 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 lights out that's incredible to watch like i've seen i've seen like 18 inch rainbows like you know just come right out of the water to grab this thing and it's it, those those things keep you up at night you know it's like start thinking about it's like man i, I really want to you know want to go again you know it's just exciting stuff yeah that's that's interesting it's a technique that i haven't heard of people doing with tankara people do it with fly fishing like you said yep never even thought to bring that over and i might have to try that this year well we uh so history history kind of tells you the story of how this technique kind of like died down and mostly it was because the the adoption of like a short rod um short rod heavy line uh heavy line weighted weighted line to be able to cast and you know mostly for dry flies right so the whole the whole you know the whole dry fly thing really kind of sidetracked this and also just these short short rods um you know in the 1800s it was very common to see an 18 foot rod um cutcliffe in particular uh, preferred a 12 foot to a 14 foot um personally i prefer either 13 or 14. uh 13 is pretty good in my opinion uh, i think you can get pretty much anything that you want done um with a 13 foot rod but that that's very recent i mean it's recent that we have that ability again you know because even even the biggest euro nymphing rod tops out at 11 foot so i've got an extra t two feet of of play you know and that angle is is really important like getting that fly up and out of the water is like one of the things that really uh, make this uh, the presentation work um so yeah it's like history kind of like you know long long rods it's like all the all the rage and then all of a sudden you know it's like you know split cane and like got all these tiny little rods and you know everything got really small and stayed that way for a long time and uh you know now i think we're headed in the right direction i think i would love to see somebody develop a rod that was you know uh like a fly rod but 12 12 to 13 foot um you know if we could just kind of move away from the whole euro nymphing competition yeah. thing and all the regulations that come with that you know and just kind of like experiment hey let's make these really long rods but like like light you know like three weights four weights you know yeah so great. i was actually at a at a fly fishing expo back in april oh. and there was a fly company there that had a 15 foot rod really yeah and i was oh. shocked to see that because that's exciting yeah <laughs> hadn't seen one that long on that on the fly western fly fishing side of the world i mean we see them in tenkara but yeah. yeah i was i talked to him for a while and it was it was cool to see something that long it was a heavier rod but i mean still we're starting to see those longer lengths come back like you said which sure will be interesting to see how people start to adapt and use them 
Well, that's a funny thing because the the salmon uh, salmon anglers know about this technique. They know about dibbling. They know about all of that stuff um, because they they still have long runs. Mm-hmm. So their ability to do that um, is is not hampered at all. They they've still been able to do this, and it kind of it kind of lived on in the salmon world, you know. Um, so yeah, uh, long rods would be awesome. I would love to see like a like a three weight or a four weight in like a fourteen, fifteen foot, even like thirteen would be perfect. That'd be pretty sweet. I'm not even yep. going to argue that at all. Yep. Uh, so uh, what would you say is your most memorable experience with Tenkara? Mm. Um, <clears throat> there's one that I keep coming back to. Um, there was, so I just received my my Japanese rod and and i was fishing we were fishing in rocky mountain national park um we actually had a group of guys come together and they were from all over uh including japan um goishi was there with us and uh it was fun like we had a lot of fun and um i had that rod and i we i just took it this is my first time fishing with it and i went with my buddy uh peter root who runs uh, uh, 10, 10 Colors, 10 Car blog. Okay. I don't know if you're familiar with it. <clears throat> huh. uh, it's, a, it's a blog that's kind of separate from Facebook. You know, um, It's a nice group. Uh, people usually have some really interesting subjects to talk about. Um, but anyways, uh, uh, I went fishing with Peter, and we went to, uh, to uh, the Big Thompson in Rocky Mountain National Park. Uh, it's a smaller river, but man, I'll tell you what, that evening was spectacular. Uh, I caught 42 fish in the space of three hours. It was exciting. I mean, and I missed, <laughs> I missed so many fish. Um, but man, I'll tell you what, it was just like, oh, this is great. Like, this rod is incredible. It casts really well. The loops are nice and tight. And I was like, this is this is insane. Like stuff that I could was not able to do with my American, you know, my American type rods. I just I was doing with ease. And you know, my buddy and I, he he caught, you know, he caught like 40 fish. And we were just like, we were slamming them. It was it was really exciting. Uh yeah, and that's that place that place sadly uh i think it was a year ago now um was part of the uh, one of the fires that happened here in colorado it's a troublesome creek okay yeah, troublesome creek fire like basically went over the mountain and down that canyon and just like burned everything you know and that is uh it's it's sad um but you know i always remember what that place looks like in my head i may never see it like that ever again and that's why that memory is kind of special for me you know because it's like it's like that home you can't go back to (laughs) you know yeah that makes a lot of sense and i mean it's cool that you have that memory though even though like you said it may never look like that again at least not in our lifetime right 
but it's it's cool that you're able to reflect back on that and remember what it was and and hopefully the fishing will return to what it was once things balance back out in the area it still gets kind of green but you know it's definitely not what it used to be yeah all the fishing's right. still good. Well, that's good news. <laughs> um, let's talk a little bit more about uh, Tenkara in Colorado specifically. Yeah. So you mentioned you're in the Denver area. Are you mostly fishing, like taking trips up into the mountains? Or are you fishing more local? Like, what what does a fishing trip look like for you? Um. So it's really, I've kind of dedicated myself for the last year and a half maybe even two years to learning how to catch fish in a very like very unusual ways at uh on the south Platte. okay so i do i do take a lot of trips to deckers um and you know i fish that water quite often and so does everybody else uh, <laughs> it's definitely overpressured, and that's what makes it kind of challenging and fun because the fish have really never seen presentations like what i'm showing them so they're, you know, I'm pretty sure that they're taken by surprise when they, you know, when they see this fly just kind of fluttering up at the top and they're like, oh, that can't be, <laughs> it can't be another, you know, can't be another Pertagon. Definitely not. No, and I, I do think it's funny. A, a lot of fly fishermen, I mean, we talked about beforehand, uh, like the Provo River and things like that. And that, yeah. that river gets fished harder than any other river in the state of Utah. But you get out there with these different presentations, these different flies, and all of a sudden you're catching fish, and it's just yeah. like they just don't see it. Like they get fished hard all day, every day. But you throw something that they haven't seen, and all of a sudden you're catching fish. It's also really subtle. Mm-hmm. The techniques are just they're sub, they're subtlety themselves. It, it just just no there's no presentation that does this that you know basically keeps all your line off the water. Right? Yeah. And I, that's so I the one of the reasons why I, I wanted to fish Deckers and South Platte and get really good at it is because um, that's that's probably one of the most pressured pieces of water uh, in Colorado. So if I can fish that and get somewhat good at doing it with uh, with Tinkara, then you know everything else is kind of a piece of cake, you know. And so far, you know, aside from a few eccentricities, you know, different different bugs and different waters, you know, and and also like sometimes you would think, oh, this isn't going to work here, and oh yeah, it does work, you know. Um, so there's that's kind of why I focused on that. But I mean, I fished the Big Thompson a lot, especially during the runoff, uh, which is happening right now. Big Thompson is really nice because there's so much water coming down a very narrow chute and because of that none of the trout uh can hang in the middle so during the runoff period you know i'll fish with you know big onis like you know size eight uh size eight onis and just cast them in there and really get you know get a bunch of fish to to react to those you know because they're really dark flies you know big hackle and they just get a lot of attention. So those those fish are all hugging near the corners. That's that's kind of one of the things that I, I like to fish. I like to fish the Big Thompson uh, during the runoff because of that. Um, 
because I can stick right to the edge and just go to you know every single eddy, every single pool, and just fish that, um, and catch a lot of fish uh, during the runoff period. Absolutely. So sounds like you're mainly you know not hitting too much mountain stuff, just staying pretty local. Is that right? Um, you know. Anything within anything within two or three hours is fair game. Okay. Uh, so I've been up to uh, haven't been up this year uh, to the frying pan, but man, the frying pan is a lot of fun. Uh, used to go there in July or August, and man, it's it's incredible. It's an incredible fishery, and believe it or not, the onis, big onis like with like a dark body. And um, you know the church window feathers from a from a ringneck pheasant, just that okay. big old white white and brown and black yeah. feather. And man, it, that fish is so well there. I don't know what it is that they think that is. Uh, maybe they think it's a green drake. I don't know. Um, but they they love that fly there. Um, so you know that's that's a dry fly. That's a dry fly stream. You know, it's like everybody goes there to fish dry flies. Um, I'm, I'm like the only schmuck, you know, sitting there with a tin car ride, you know, fishing, fishing wet flies because it works. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. They've seen enough dries already. They know what that looks like. Um, what else? Uh, I get into the Alpine lakes a little bit. Um, uh, just right here along this range, uh, we have the Indian peaks and Indian peaks have some really nice Alpine lakes giant cutthroat um some of them are just impressive you know and i've i've fished those with fixed line before um like i said i would like to get you know maybe a maybe a rod for that you know uh rod and reel just to be able to cast a little bit further and you know do some of the techniques that i've been reading about but other than that curiosity i i seem to do pretty well just with just with fixed line Absolutely. Especially you get into a lot of the alpine lakes and they're not big lakes in the aspect of a lot of the ones that you see down in valleys and stuff. Right. Yeah. And so you get a lot more fish like we were talking about earlier, just cruising the shorelines and you're able to be very productive that way. Yep. So it's, yeah. It's nice. And like I said, it's such a light presentation that they really, they never see it coming. Absolutely. So we've talked a lot about trout. We talked a little bit about how you came from a bass fishing background. Yes. Uh, what are the species that you get to target with Tenkara that you want to? If species any. that I want to that I want to catch for Tenkara? Yeah. Basically, any trout that I don't have here. <laughs> <laughs> so goldens, I would love to catch goldens. Um, that's that's probably number one on my list is to catch golden trout uh, in their area. You know, not we have goldens here, but it's not the same. You know, they're stocked. Um, what else? Grayling, would love to catch grayling. Uh, again, we have grayling here. They're very small, um, but we do have them. And uh, man, like all the all the trout in, in Japan, you know, uh, I would love to go to Japan and fish that. Um, I went in two thousand and one, but I really wasn't into wasn't into tenkara. I wasn't into fly fishing. I was. Just kind of stuck on bass. I didn't even realize that Japan had like a bass scene, you know. But they're like their bass scene is serious. 
really serious, you know. But, you know, that trip, I didn't do any fishing at all. So I would love to go back to Japan and, and fish there. That'd be a very fun trip. And mm -hmm. I, like I said, didn't realize that they had a bass scene in Japan. So that's news. Oh, it, it's serious. They're, they actually, some of the lures that they come up with are, are, are definitely like next level stuff. Like, because <laughs> their, their, their waters are very, very pressured, you know? Yeah. So they're, they're constantly changing up what their baits look like and their techniques. And, and it's, it's pretty cool. Like the Japanese stuff coming up for bass is really, really interesting. And. Oh, absolutely. All right. So uh, as we get back into uh, the Tenkara away from the bass fishing here, yeah. uh, what does an ideal trip look like for, in Colorado? Uh, if you really want to experience Tenkara, um, you have to head up into the mountains. You know, if that's if your goal is to fish, you know, traditional uh, kebari or um things of that nature you're really going to want to go to a, to a mountain stream uh some of the best mountain streams that we have here um they're not very far away and they receive very little pressure because nobody wants to make the hike uh so there's tons of them here um and you can there's there's plenty of them that you can actually camp right next to them and that's that's a that's a perfect in my opinion it's a perfect weekend for you know just get up there and, and spend a long weekend and and fish that water you know if you have the luxury of fishing during the week do it you know because it's going to be even less people up there um there are a few rivers here that have uh rookies you know uh unfortunately uh the push west also brought the brookies with all the settlers uh because cutthroat really don't produce as fast um so they emptied out all the cutthroat ate them all and they're like well we need somebody to something to replace these so they replace them with rookies so the, if you can really get to a stream that has cutthroat in it that's that's really like the the treasure you know you can catch rookies all day long get really bored of them there's 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 a lot of rookies here um but once you get into a stream that has cutthroat it's it's really nice to see how how interesting they are. They they really they really are a very beautiful fish. Absolutely. I mean, we're fortunate in Utah. We have three subspecies of cutthroat here. Hey. <laughs> I'm sorry. You're good. He's uh, protecting but, me. <laughs> oh yeah, letting you know, right? He's like an ankle biter, but he does his best. <laughs> yeah, but we, we are fortunate. We have three subspecies of cutthroat in Utah, one of them being the Colorado cutthroat. Yeah. Um, we do have the Bonneville cutthroat as yep. well as, I guess, technically four subspecies, the Bear Lake cutthroat, which is a subspecies of Bonneville cutthroat, and then the Yellowstone cutthroat as well. So we're, we're fortunate here. Um, I've caught two of the four subspecies i've got to get nice. my yellowstone and my bear lake still but i've got the colorado and the bonneville i mean i've got a bonneville creek 
15 minutes away from my apartment so it's convenient yeah I, it's it's <laughs> we had a we had kind of a snafu here with uh with the um cutthroat because we thought that we had like a while back they thought they had greenbacks they thought they had found this population of greenbacks so they started you know they started stocking everywhere you know rocky mountain national park got quite a bit of this you know and they still put up the signs hey these are greenbacks no <laughs> they are not they are colorado cutthroat uh unfortunately what's um, funny pretty sure i watched a video i think it was the last year the year before of someone on a tenkara trip in colorado that they're like yeah we're going in to catch the greenback cutthroat are you though are you sure about that <laughs> <laughs> Maybe to the best yeah. of their knowledge. Yeah, I I guess you know there's you know they're hard to tell, hard to tell the difference. Um, but I am I going to say that they're not there? I, I can't. But there's definitely certain places that have been stocked and are somewhat isolated. Uh, in fact, they're trying to do that with the headwaters of the Hooter, um, which are still in pretty good condition. Everything underneath the the uh, Cameron Peak fire is is pretty messed up. Like there was a lot of ash that made its way into the river, and it killed I don't know like sixty percent of the trout population. So yeah, but up above it was good. So they're they're trying to they're trying to get that area ready for uh, introduction of the greenback, and it'd be kind of cool to see. Yeah, that'd be really cool to watch it hopefully grow and flourish out there. I mean, you talk about 60% of the fish being killed off in a waterway. That Unfortunately, it's a common trend with fires that happens all too regular these days. Uh, thankfully, yeah. in Utah, we got that heavy winter that we're all dreading, but we needed. Um, <laughs> a lot of the western states are in the same boat with that unfortunately but we needed the moisture so i guess it's fortunately unfortunately i don't know yeah i mean and who knows who knows how many years it was like this you know and we're just so used to the drought that we've never really seen what colorado or utah or you know any of our western states can really you know can really push out absolutely at least i but I'm sure some of the older, you know, old timers can tell you, you know. Yeah, I mean, the last time Utah saw winter this heavy was, I believe, 83. And so yeah. that's before my time, especially my time in Utah. I moved here in 2017. So definitely not like I know what an average year other than the past six years have looked like. Yep. All right. So if someone's planning to take a trip to Colorado, what should they know beforehand? Uh, so you're going to be told to like, it really depends on when you're coming. Um, because there's certain times of the year where you're not going to be able to fish a big fly. Um, like a size 12, just it's too big um however that being said uh during the summertime is summertime is probably the best um any any time like early july uh after the runoff is done um 
July and August and even September are absolutely stellar. Um, probably some of the best fishing. It, the, the further you get into autumn, the better it gets. Like, because those fish really, they feel that cold water coming and they really start to pack on the pounds. So um, they feed voraciously. Uh, if you're coming to Colorado, uh, <laughs> make sure that you're ready for anything. Um, especially if you're going to the Alpine Lakes or any kind of high altitude. Because it could rain one minute, be sunshine, snow the next, lightning, hail, everything. You really have to be prepared. Because uh, these mountains will throw just about anything at you um, at any point during the day. Uh, any, I mean, it can literally snow here any day of the year. Mm -hmm. um, and that's, you know, that's kind of what you get when you go up that high. Um, but, I mean, other than that, you know, there's still fish. You know, everybody talks about intelligent trout. There's no such thing. Um, we're overthinking it. Really, what we need to do is learn learn your skill very well. Learn learn tenkara very well. Um, you know, if if you're if you're you know doing the dead drifting thing and it's working out for you, that's great. You know, um, there's other there's other ways to catch fish, and some of those ways are like really really fun. Um, like you'll be laughing laughing every single time you catch one because it's just it's hysterical to watch what these fish will do um you know for a technique that you know is it's different it's it's older um it's an older world style you know but learn learn what you can about that you know learn learn everything there is about it if you really if you you know the more you have the more skills you have the more ability you have less gear you're gonna need does that make sense you, you you're you know you've got all these tools but the tools are just techniques you know and you know fly might not work one way but you switch it up and you do something else all of a sudden it's like you know like a light switch you know yeah um i i can tell you that right now like anytime i swing a fly if i swing it just regular with nothing um I might catch a fish. I might, you know, it probably will not happen because uh, it's not it's not the right type of motion. As soon as I start adding just any kind of like tapping or you know, kind of like jigging motion, I mean, it's like all of a sudden they're they're into it, you know. And all it took was just knowledge, an understanding of okay, now what can I do with this fly? You know, how can I fish this fly in a different way? Same fly in a different way, you know, to make it more appealing for the fish. And that's, you know, if you, if you come to Colorado, come prepared, you know, um, it's, it's a fun place to fish. It really is. Uh, and the fish here are still pretty dumb <laughs> and they still don't know what Tengara is. They're like, I don't know what this is. This is crazy. <laughs> this thing looks real. I don't, I don't know what's, what's real anymore. Man, dumb fish are my favorite fish. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Like anytime you get further than fifteen minutes away from a city, you find the dumb fish. Oh yeah, 
Well, it's 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 funny because people talk about the South Platte. It's like, oh, there's fish are really educated. You know, they see all kinds of flies. I'm like, um, maybe if you're fishing uh if you're fishing the you know the traditional style, the the you know the conventional style of fly fishing, yeah, yeah, they probably have seen everything. Um, you give them this, you give them tenkara, you give them something that they haven't seen, and they'll go nuts. Uh, they'll lose their they'll lose their minds. <laughs> yeah, love to hear it. All right, uh, kind of wrapping up here. Is there anything that you feel like we should have talked about that we haven't talked about? Um, yeah. So uh, you were asking me about bass fishing. Oh yes. Um, and you can you know, uh, you can include this. You can cut it out. Whatever you want to do. But bass fishing in particular is actually a really good starting point for understanding tenkara. And one of the reasons for this is because of those techniques. I mean, you're, you know, um, it's it's jigging. You're basically jigging. You're basically um, start. So a lot of people think of trout as like this, you know, very gentle sipping creature, you know, that comes up. Um, of course, we've learned that, you know, they'll take streamers, they'll, they'll eat, you know, they'll eat mice off the top of the water. Um, they're not shy. They just want food. Um, so if you learn, if you kind of start thinking about trout the way you do a bass, right? And just think of them as a predatory animal. But instead, now start thinking about your flies um, like lures, right? So your flies are, you know, you, you're basically trying to mimic a struggling prey image, okay? And if there's one thing about predators is that they take the opportunity for uh, to attack a wounded prey because they're easier. And one of the things I think we get wrapped up with is we think that, oh, man, these tr these flies are coming out perfect. Every single one of these flies coming off the bottom of the water is absolutely perfect. They swim perfect. They, you know, of course, we know that's not true either. Many of them are um, missing legs from stone flies that have tried to eat them or other mishaps or, you know, whatever. And they're, you know, they're they're some of them really can't swim very well. You know, they're trying to make it up to the top and they get picked off. And I think we've got to have to start thinking about these tiny little insects like, okay, this is, you know, you, how can I make this seem like this insect's really struggling to hatch, you know? Um, and if you can do that, if you, if you, if you figure them out, you know, because some insects will hatch quicker than others. Some behave in a different way when they hatch. Um, then you can start kind of uh, piecing together these these little you know these techniques that you can do that kind of make things uh, more appealing to the fish you know and it matches very precisely what you're doing with uh, with the blue winged olive for instance like, like the blue winged olive you, that's that fly that little insect moves so quick it is very very fast and it's an amazing little fly. Um, because that that nymph's just shooting, you know, 
And so there's sometimes when I can't drag that fly across the water fast enough. Um, they're, they, they'll intercept it. Um, and then there's other times where, you know, if I slow that down a little bit, it works, it works a little bit better. You know, they can track it easier and they, they catch it better, you know? Um, how many times have you like lifted up the rod to a back cast and all of a sudden the fish, you know, either strikes it all the time. And that's a fast motion, mm -hmm. you know, and that's, you have to start thinking to yourself, man, they're used to that. They're used to something that quick. And these fish can go zero to 60 and I don't know how many seconds. I, they're, they're really, really quick. Yeah. So no, no bug is really a challenge for them. Right. I mean, well, if you think about it that way. It's one of those things where like you watch YouTube videos or I'm sure you've had the same experience I have where you go out, you hear it on the YouTube videos as well. They go to, like you said, they set the hook and it's like, oh, I had a fish on. I didn't realize there was a fish there. More than likely that fish wasn't on. It bit, like you said, as you were going to move the fly. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. In fact, there's uh, there's a really old technique. Um, and I'm when I say old, I'm, I mean really, really old. Uh, this is we're talking about the 1500s. Um, this is in England. Uh, a guy by the name of Richard, uh, Richard Venables uh, wrote a book called The Experienced Angler. Right? And in this book, he has and the fourth edition he has this weighted fly and it's a cad bait he calls it which is really a, a caddis and what he's done with this is he's tied it with silk right and black silk but over the silk he wraps uh he wraps or under the silk on the hook he wraps lead right so he flattens this piece of lead out and he wraps it around the shank of the hook and then he takes the silk and he covers that. And then he takes uh, beeswax. And then he covers that. And he takes, you know, makes makes a little body of the cad bait, you know, with a black head made of wax. So what he does with this thing is he, he fishes this weighted fly. He fishes this by casting it upstream, letting it sink down. And then he pulls it up and then he lets it sink back down again. And he maybe gets maybe two two times of doing this, you know, he just pulls it up. And as he's pulling it up, that's when he says that you're probably going to get a strike if there's a fish in there at all. You know. This is the first time you see anybody talking about a weighted fly. Especially a fly that was built with the lead wrapped on the shank of the hook. This is in the 1500s. You don't see this again for 300 years yeah. you know incredible stuff right but there there it is that manipulation technique and what do you think this guy was using he was using a fixed line rod and pretty much if you go back into history and you start reading these guys uh you know uh charles cotton um you know juliana burners uh um you know, Venables, um, Richard, uh, Richard Bulker. These are getting these really cool things that they're doing. Like the whole tap tap thing, man, they had that figured out. They already knew it. Yeah. Um, you know, they were, they were doing stuff. One of the, one of the most important things that they said is that if when you're fly fishing to always keep your fly in motion. I mean, 
I very rarely dead drift a fly. Like I said, we're all I'm always doing tap tap or something there. Yeah. I might be bobbing my rod a little bit. You know, like I yeah. said, jigging. I'm glad that you brought that up actually. Like I was in shock. It was about two years ago and I was fishing this spot that I fished hundreds of times. Mm-hmm. And I'd caught fish in the same spot almost every time I fished there. And for some reason that day, they just were not biting. And I'm just like, what the heck? Like, I see fish in here. I, I catch fish in here all the time. Yeah. And um, I'm a firm believer that before I change my fly, I'm going to figure out what I'm doing wrong because that's more than likely what the issue is. Sure. And so I ended up just moving a little bit for, I'm, I moved to the head of the pool instead of the tail of the pool and flipped to the tail and started jigging it back up towards me. And all of a sudden the fish were biting. And it was the first time I'd ever done that with the 10 car rod. And I'm just like, why have I not done this before? Yep. Yep. The eyes, the eyes open. It's like, oh yeah. man, I need to be doing this more often. Yeah. Like there's a whole avenue to this that I hadn't even explored yet. Yeah. And I, I really think that, um, you know, it's, it's funny because I, I get a lot of flack sometimes from, from Western anglers um, for doing what I'm doing. Um, but, you know, it's really their sport, right? Just, just the older form of it, you know? Yeah. Um, this, is, this, is where, this is where fly fishing began, you know, for thousands of years. It was this. It was this way. It was the only way that you were ever going to fish with a fly. Yep. So, and for that long a period of time, you know, this style has never gone out of circulation. This, there's never a point in history since it began that fly fishing with a fixed line setup um, was not being practiced. So, if you think about that, I mean, this is this is the oldest, one of the oldest forms of fishing, you know, definitely the oldest forms of fly fishing. So, you know, their history, it's, it's really, you know, what we're doing is what is the history of their sport too. You know, yeah. just, uh, it's just interesting how things have kind of, you know, full circle, but there's so many things to learn. There's so many interesting things that you can do with this. Um, I just, uh, sometimes I wish they could kind of like, you know, give it a shot, you know? see what there is to learn because there's yeah. a lot absolutely well we are out of time today unfortunately i think i might have to have you back on in the future because i feel like we still have a lot that we could talk about here mm-hmm. um but thank you very much for joining me today jonathan uh where can people follow your tenkara journey uh so on instagram um trout conjurer all one word or you can just find me on facebook uh, just look up my name Perfect. Well, thank you again. Um, I really appreciate you coming out. Uh, For those of you that are listening, we are still looking for a handful of people to fill the other 50 states. We've got four down at this point. And uh, thank you again, Jonathan, for hitting Colorado for us. If you are interested in coming in on a future episode of the podcast, reach out to me on Instagram or via email. Uh, You can find me on Instagram at Let's Talk Tenkara or shoot me an email at Let's Talk uh, choking over my words there uh let's talk tenkara at gmail.com thanks again jonathan and tune in next time thank you brenna
this has been the Let's Talk Tenkara podcast. Hosted by Brendan Harden. Special guest, Jonathan Antunes. You can find Jonathan on Instagram at Trout Conjurer. You can reach us on Instagram at Let's Talk Tenkara. You can also shoot us an email at Let's Talk Tenkara at gmail.com. Feel free to reach out with any suggestions for future episodes. Feel free to reach out if you're interested in being featured on the podcast. You can reach out to us again on Instagram at Let's Talk Tenkara or shoot us an email. This has been the Let's Talk Tenkara podcast, a Salt Lake Tenkara production.